I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio versus the Martians. This month, Open World Video Games. To paraphrase the bard, all the world may very well be a simulation, and all of us in it, self-aware AI. We may merely be ensconced in a high-resolution virtual reality world at the banal whim of some super-advanced beings, if you believe billionaire playboys and overtaxed philosophers. But putting aside questions of Cartesian epistemology, humanity sure is hell-bent on trying to recreate the experience of a huge, unbound simulation with the video games we play. Video gaming, the entertainment medium seemingly most obsessed with achieving an atom-for-atom duplication of reality, has developed a genre wherein we recreate a slice of the world to allow a human to become the momentary master of that universe. And that genre is, of course, open-world games. And you know what I'm talking about. Hell, even people who've never played a video game in their life know Grand Theft Auto. And game franchises like Fallout, The Elder Scrolls, and Assassin's Creed are legends in this medium. Although with video gaming, there's no Hoyle, there's no Websters or OED, so genres and definitions can be nebulous. But open world games are just that, open. Unlike Mario Brothers, your playfield is not linear, it's not a start to finish affair, not necessarily at least, and the player is free to roam about, off-road, off the beaten path, in a landscape that can be as large as a city. Heck, it can be as large as an imaginary country. And not only is the player's movement relatively unrestricted, so too is the game's progression through a storyline. Often, open-world games give you a main quest in the form of a series of smaller quests that form a, a big narrative. But often there are side quests or jobs that allow you to explore the world, to flush out other stories, or simply allow the player to progress your character without advancing the plot. These can give way to branching paths that may actually change the outcome of the final story, or simply leave you with the sense that the world is more vibrant and lived in, and more real. But you know, here we're talking about video games, interactivity, and how does a player in an open world game play? You traverse this world on foot, on horseback, car, or even winged mount. Open world games are noted for making travel the primary mode of gameplay. Travel is open, the landscape unfolds, and you explore the terrain. There are very few other experiences more vivid to me than barreling down a crowded city street in Grand Theft Auto with several cop cars in hot pursuit, smashing other cars and barely skittering around turns. Often the delight of open world games can be in discovering what is called emergent gameplay. It's when a situation arrives spontaneously, usually involving random or spawn characters colliding in an unexpected or unintended way. And these are the stuff of legends, where you experience something so rare that it may not even be reproducible where a game starts to approach the serendipity of reality. These days, open-world games are popular and profitable. Heck, Grand Theft Auto V made over $800 million in the first 24 hours of release. That's on par with Pablo Escobar or Lockheed Martin for dollars made per minute. These games are huge tentpole releases for multinational companies trading in the billions of dollars. 
And with that, let's carjack a hot rod, collect our arsenals, and explore the photorealistic frontier. This month's panel episode is Open World Games. Joining us for her first Radio vs. the Martians joint is podcaster, video games journo, and beer fanatic, Kinsey Burke. Welcome, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. <laughs> Returning for a second panel, my spiritual guru, midnight philosopher, and soon-to-be co-host as on an as-of-yet-announced Radio vs. the Martians podcast project, Patrick Johnson. Hey, great to be back. How the hell are you? Oh, so good. <laughs> good. Now. <laughs> good. Last but never least, big smoke to my CJ, Navi to my Link, Liberty Prime to my Elder Lions, Mike Gillis. Hey, I used to be a podcaster, but then I took an arrow to the knee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Nice. Okay, well, we're talking about open world games, and I want to start with you, Kinsey, put you in the hot seat. Um, what is an open world game, and how does it differ from the many other types of games just trying to build a setting in a virtual space? I feel like open world games are just, they're, they're really their own kind of monster, Like most games, think of like an Uncharted or a Bioshock or something like that. You're following a story. They'll give you the illusion of an open world. They're like, hey, this room's really big and you can go over here, but you probably can't ever come back. So Uh like in an open world game, you can kind of do anything. You don't have to follow the main story. You can make your, hell, you can make your own story. You're like, I'm going to make this story about these wolves over here that kicked my ass for like 400 hours ago. Right. It's that it's that thing within Super Mario Brothers. You can travel to the right, but you can't travel back to the left, <laughs> sort of thing. Exactly, yes, you get wo- all directions. It's the Langoliers. The world in the past has just got eaten up. There is no past. There's only future. You know, um, Patrick. Follow up. What is it about the open world gaming experience that seems so infectious? I'm and I'm I'm recalling back to uh, YouTube videos of people over the age of seventy playing Grand Theft Auto Five and just like hysterically laughing and having fun. What is it what's what is it about the formula that does that? So conventional games really you you are walking in the footsteps that have been sort of marked out for you on the stage and in an open world game because you can go anywhere things can happen that are just your experience and you can do things that are completely silly and stupid and have nothing to do with the the game elements itself and that is I remember playing the first time I played Grand Theft Auto 3 that spending hours just p- finding different ways to flip cars over and make them explode. <laughs> um, it's it's not it doesn't progress the storyline. There's no there's no reward for doing it, but it was fun in a way that hadn't been available in in games that I played up to that point. Hmm. Uh and Mike because you're so good at doing this. Um you're so good at uh talking to the layman. I want you to describe how you see open world games uh, to someone who is not familiar with video games. I mean, what 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 are they? What do they feel like playing? Well, it's the alternative to something like Donkey Kong where or Pac-Man where the entire world that exists for this character is on the screen at any given time. Or even with Super Mario Brothers where the rule is run to the right, try not to die. Right. And you try to get to a goal, you try to kill a bad guy, you can jump over or avoid people. But in this case, the options are open that you're not told you have to go there you have to save the princess. You have to eat those dots on the screen. You are free to do whatever you want. They always present you with a story. Like in Skyrim, there's a whole story with this dragon coming back. There's a civil war happening. And you can get involved in those stories or you can set your own agenda. And I think that's what really separates an open world game from anything else, which is it's not linear. 
if you want to fuck around for 10 hours chopping wood and crafting potions or running down people with your car, you can't. <laughs> then I actually have a coworker who's playing Fallout 4 the same as I am, and he doesn't do quests, and I really don't understand. He doesn't even do side quests. He has been playing 20, 40, 50 hours of this game without even touching the story. Hmm. And it's completely possible to do that, that you can go bowling in a video game. You can have a video game character play a video game. <laughs> the extra set of weirdness. I got really good at the Tetris knockoff game they had in Grand Theft Auto 4. Yeah, yeah. So I basically am playing a career criminal who is just going into a bar and going up to a video game cabinet. <laughs> and it's like these extra layers of weirdness in reality. And I think that's what it is, is that you can also choose how you approach a problem even when the game is linear, that you mm. say, go here, do this thing. And you can approach it from so many different ways. And I think it really comes down to is just player choice. Right. I, I, speaking of like uh, novel solutions, I remember, I think I was watching, what's fascinating to me is uh, we haven't talked too much about speed running as a thing. And it's so fascinating to me that speed running, I don't know if we would consider it a sport or even an esport, but it has a sort of a level of competition about it. And it is primarily a spectator sport because how do you convince thousands upon tens of thousands of people, I assume, to watch the Games Done Quick lot events like twice a year, um, to watch people who have just played games so much that they are experts at getting through it and skipping stuff and, and finding little exploits that are fun. Someone was doing something with the with uh, one of the Grand Theft Auto games where they would park a truck at the back door of a place where like the enemy enemy NPC had to run out of, so the guy could not run out the door. I did that. <laughs> yeah, there's object permanence in these games. Right. Yes. I did. There's a level in Grand Theft Auto Four. I th I was talking to you about this. Is uh, I I every time I would go into the strip club to kill the manager. He would escape, and I, I don't want to kill a bunch of random people. And again, you can sort of choose your own morality. I mean, right. yes, I'm a killer. Yes, I'm a criminal. But I'm not like Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, I don't want to be a bad, bad guy. So I want to limit the amount of carnage <laughs> But that I mean, I if you want to. Oh, you totally sure. can. You can sure. be all of these things. And there's a freedom to sort of create your own identity, even when there's a an established character. Right. But I think with uh, that one, I parked a van, and he couldn't get through the back door, and I just shot him against the wall. <laughs> and there was another level where I got to do something similar. I could break the assumption that the game had for a level or a task, where in Grand Theft Auto 4, the motorcycles are shit. You mm. take any hard turn, you fall off. And I'm just like, you're also basically just a target on top of a really fast engine, and uh, I'm supposed to chase this bad guy to a park, and he leads me into an ambush of a bunch of other bikers. So I say, fuck that. I'm not taking the motorcycle they've left for me for this mission. I'm taking a car. Right, right. And I drove the car there. Not only was it easier to steer really fast after this guy, when I got to the park, I could just run all these bikers <laughs> down with this car. <laughs> and I'm in this bulletproof, like, suit of armor. Nice. It's great. Nice. It's, it's so great. Um, it that brings up to the first point that I had, which is um, it's the people who design and make open world games have this challenge, right? You, uh, the idea that behind anyone who wants an open world game is that you make just that an open world. So they have this idea of balancing the freedom with balancing a game, right? Because you can obviously make an open, a virtual world where people can walk around and, and do stuff, but that may not actually move the needle enough for people to want to play it. 
they actually have to, there has to be a story. There has to be goals. There has to be, hopefully, character progression. Your character gets better or the story progresses and gets to a conclusion. But th- this delicate balance of saying you can do whatever you want to, but you also have to do these things as well is, to, so to me, is part of the challenge of, uh, of the games and something that I think that Grand Theft Auto does obviously very well. It's and why it's the exemplar of the whole genre. Well, there's a limit to the things you can do. You have free choice in Grand Theft Auto 4, but every choice involves me being a criminal. There's right, no version right. of this right. where I can start a nonprofit for Liberty City where I'm trying to alleviate poverty <laughs> through nonviolent means. I mean, it just is there's no version of this where I get to just choose to be outlawed Josie Wales and turn this life away. Right. Mm. right. I actually think between Grand Theft Auto 3, which was the first one that was done in 3D, uh, to the more recent versions, you actually there's been a loss of freedom. I think that the quests that you take are more scripted, that there is a correct way to do things, and a lot less room to sort of subvert the original goals of the game designers, which is which is too bad. That um, you can't you can have an in- incredible amount of sort of linear feel in an otherwise open world game, depending on how you structure it, and in, in order to make sure that people aren't cheating your your system by just running over all of your gangsters instead of having a motorcycle um some of those freedoms are not always given to the player yeah like a lot of them um when the level start or the mission starts you're already on that motorcycle so to get off and get into a car it would just like defeat the whole purpose they're like oh he got away yeah yeah. (laughs) I yeah. had to get into that car really fast, by the way. <laughs> and there's several times he got away while I was running to that car. Like, I, I mean, I, I suppose it's the it's the hallmark of a great open world game that achieves that strikes this balance naturally, and that you don't, and that because you're never dis, you're never actively discouraged from sort of wandering off. There's never of like a like a little warning meter that says, and eh, eh, you can't do this," and then reset you, kills you and resets you or something. Um, the best kind, of course, let you do the Fallout 4 thing and never do a quest. Just, I want to go, I want to do settlement building now and forever, and I never want to do anything else. Like, um, that seems like the, the, the hallmark of a great open world game. Um, and I think that none of the games we'll be talking about here are going to be the ones that do that poorly, because there are quite a few knockoffs and clones. Um, I, I would be remiss in my uh, uh, my capacity as a self-described video game historian to not talk about where open world games sort of came from. Because like I said, I think the def- definition is kind of nebulous and only in the last 10 years when you've had the processing power to make giant 3D worlds has open world games start to approach that of reality. Um, so I did some research and I sort of thought about my own experience and um, if you look back at things like Ultima and Final Fantasy and Dragon Warrior, talking about those 2D RPGs where you basically had an overworld that was essentially an, uh, uh, you know, an, uh, an open world and you could almost go anywhere if you were tough enough to survive the monsters to go into the next area. Um, but I guess my question to you is, um, is the idea of an overworld too limiting to really be considered an open world game? Because it's not really open; it's just a boundary. It's just a uh, it's just a sandbox that's slightly larger on a two D plane. Sure. Legend of Zelda, even. yes, yeah. yeah, and that even that that could be most charitably just said a series of rooms stacked vertically and horizontally. You know, and the alternative is something like um, the Final Fantasy games, right. where the world map is essentially just a large map where your icon walks around. It's not right. the same experience as going through every dungeon where things are more fully rendered, things are at a more realistic scale. And uh, the thing that the open world game does is it renders the entire world and not just a map 
and rendered cool areas, mm-hmm. it makes it all one thing. Right. So, like you mentioned, the journey being a big part of the experience. That well, it renders it all and it puts you at scale with the world. I think that's one of the the things that's makes. Uh, Final Fantasy, a little. If you look at the first one, kind of Mickey Mouse, is that on the overworld you look like you're a you know a eighty foot tall giant, and you're <laughs> the same icon when you're going through a dungeon, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Because a dungeon is just a square that's the same size as right. you are on that map, <laughs> right? So right. of course they're not going to put it to scale. But yeah, that I think that's a big part of it is the experience of walking through it and absorbing it as if you're a person in that world. Well, I, I will say that one thing that that does is. Um, that makes it feel like a world is that I still love that that feeling that you get when you're starting off at a game like that where you sort of you leave that town because you start off in a town usually you wake up or something right <laughs> and you you go into the uh, the the map and you venture out and then the world is so big and scary and you get your ass kicked and you scurry back to the inn and you have that sort of ex- you you are exploring by virtue of the fact that you have to be powerful enough to sort of quest on further and further and further and when you do so you start discovering more of the world that exists and more of the lore that exists that's why i think there's a good parallel to be drawn between that and something like skyrim i think so because i mean like when i first started playing final fantasy games i didn't really have i didn't have a skyrim to compare it to R- right so right. i you know I assumed that's what an open world game was. And a lot of Final Fantasy games, like, you can go most places, yeah, if you're strong enough. Or, like, you don't have an airship yet, so you can't get over that mountain, right? Like, there's always some sort of physical barrier, you know? Um, but I don't know. When I first started playing Final Fantasy games, I was like, this world's fucking huge. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. But, yeah, I think it's it does. It does. There's a sense of immensity that you didn't get with other games at that time. And I think, if anything, Final Fantasy as a series has kind of regressed away from that. They don't have a world map or a sense of exploration anymore. I think they've kind of ceded that to these open world games. They've sort of made their games a more specific genre. Hmm. And that part of that game has kind of become its own thing, the idea of traveling. So you're you're playing a game technically without playing the game you're kind of going between <laughs> playing the game right um i know that there's parts of red dead redemption where just riding your horse through this prairie is a beautiful almost relaxing experience and occasionally gets interrupted by a random event like Mr. Come help me, help me. They got my wife. And then, you know, and you have to save his wife from getting hung or somebody leads you into an ambush or somebody broke their leg and they need you to help get them to town or they're being robbed. I mean, there's all these little things that that sort of happen, but there's something almost peaceful about walking through even the destroyed world of Fallout. Sure. And being able to experience it while nothing is really happening. Because, I mean, when we have things like movies and video games, too, they want to have you do something at all times. But that off time sometimes becomes weirdly therapeutic. Hmm. (laughs) It becomes part of the game. Even the post-apocalyptic future can be therapeutic. It can. (laughs) I fully agree. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And I I sort of – I mentioned this word before. I hear uh, the open world games and the idea of a sandbox used – almost interchangeably sometimes. And I guess my question, an open question is, are all open world games sandboxes and vice versa? Are all sandbox games open world games? What? I say no, not all sandboxes are open world. Uh, I mean, you could say that Bioshock is a sandbox. There's a limited amount of space, but there's a lot of things you can interact with. Mm. But it's a linear game that has, like you were saying, Kinsey, the illusion of all these choices and places you can go. I can't go to parts of Rapture until I get certain story objectives and get certain powers. And then 
it's basically leading me in that order, that the stuff is built to be unlocked in a certain order. But when I play something like Skyrim, uh, Skyrim, I can go anywhere at any time that if I decide that I'm going to just go north, I will go north and I'll see those horker things, the big right. walrus creatures, <laughs> and I could possibly go and join the Wizards College and I can do this stuff right. and completely ignore the whole destiny that I have as a dragonborn warrior who's going to save the world from Armageddon. I can just ignore that altogether where other games don't allow you to do it. But I think there's also games that have a lot of the pieces of open world that are even made by companies that make open world games that I'd say dance on the edge of being open world, mm. like L.A. Noir. Yeah. Oh, With, yeah. L.A. Noir is like a 1940s police detective game that I can drive all made, over. Made by Rockstar, the same people who make Grand, Grand Theft Auto, Auto yeah. and Red Dead. Yeah, but yep. I can drive all over 1947 Los Angeles, but most of it I can't interact with. That aside from a number of random cases on the radio I can get or the actual storyline, I can't choose what order I do stuff in. I can't wander off and create my own fun to the same degree. It's beautiful landscape. But aside from getting an achievement from just finding landmarks, there's really no reason for me to go to places other than the places that the story leads me. Hmm. So I think it kind of has to have that ability to ignore the game that they've created, the story they've created altogether, and make my own fun. Hmm. I think this this is a real pitfall in open world where... When you have something of that scale, then you have to create content to fill it or else it's going to feel really empty. Uh, I remember I played years ago, I don't remember the name of the game, but it was uh, Pirates of the Caribbean themed game. And they made it all of these villages that you could go into and you could sail these different islands and there were cities, but there was, not, there was no reason to. There was no reason to go to any of these places. There were no shops, <laughs> there were no characters. Um, and it really it rang so hollow that... All of this extra modeling that they did just went to expose the lack of content. Um, in terms of the sandbox question, I think a true sandbox game is something that doesn't provide you with objective. I mean, it's something that which the, the the point of it is getting in and just playing around. You know, Minecraft being the most obvious example sure. that there is there is an uh, an end game thing. You can beat Minecraft, but that isn't the point of it. Mm-hmm. The point is to get in and play around. And great open world games have that element that there are things, there's plenty to be had that has nothing to do with any sort of objective. That mm. um, you can you can build your own castle and uh, and then knock it down just for just for kicks. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Uh, it's funny because you mentioned the Pirates of the Caribbean game, and I was just thinking about the, some of the earlier examples of sort of of open world games, especially on the PC space, are things like. Of course, Elder Scrolls, Arena, and Daggerfall, the the predecessors to Morrowind and Oblivion and Skyrim, um, was a first person and an open world. But between the, the towns were the towns themselves were set. They had characters in them. They had story objectives and things you could buy and do. Everything in between the world um, was procedurally generated. So you're you're walking between town A and town B, and the, all the rocks, all the trees, all the creatures you encounter. Um, if you loaded up the game another time and tried to do the same path, it would be completely different. So it gave you it gave you sort of the and I was thinking of other uh, sort of predecessors like Starflight was a um, was a sort of a space exploration game where all the systems were procedurally generated. So every time you, you spawned a new game, you had different systems and there were different stuff in the system. So you had the freedom to like explore this entire galaxy, but of course the galaxy didn't persist. You wouldn't be able to tell a friend like, oh, if you go here. You'll find this thing that'll get you the thing that'll do it, like you can do in a Grand Theft Auto game. You but know? I think that's kind of the beauty of it in a lot of ways, is that you 
talked to people who've also played Skyrim or Fallout 4, and they have stories about what happened to them, and it doesn't match your experience. Right. And that's what makes watching Let's Plays for these games so much fun, or not boring, because I can watch the speed run of Super Mario Brothers, but once I watch it that one time, there's no other way to do that other than to do it slightly better. Mm-hmm. And with with a lot of this, you can make your own fun. I've seen there's a... YouTuber who goes under the name of Many a True Nerd, and what he does is do playthroughs of Bethesda games, usually the Fallout series, and specifically gives himself um, a restriction. Mm -hmm. Like he Mm -hmm. did one called Kill Everybody, where his goal was (laughs) to kill every single human being and monster on this map. And sometimes it means having to complete all of their quests. So and then they become non-essential them. to the game so you can kill them <laughs> and then trying to kill them in a bizarre ironic way and uh it's little things like that or doing a game uh that he did where you only live once where i have one life bar i refuse to heal myself i refuse to go to sleep and even though over time my character naturally heals i will have a natural my own health counter over here so that i can try to make it through the game on a, on a single life bar mm-hmm. and if i want more experience points i have to gain a level and seeing if he can survive it and you see him play really cautious, cowardly games, <laughs> but also um, pacifist runs. R- right, right. Pacifist runs are such a great thing because I think that they've given people the opportunity to create their own game within this world. And right. I think so, so that's much a big so that game designers are putting achievements in their games for pacifist runs and making accommodations for that as well in the way that they design them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I well, I think we may we might have been circling around it because. Uh, in Skyrim, there's, I mean, other than maybe like the creatures that appear and some of the quests that are generated, uh, not many of them are random. Like you go to, uh, was it, was it White Whitehall? Not Whitehall. White Run. White Run, and you're, the Jarl is going to be the same, and the people sort of spawned within the town are mostly going to be the same. Uh, and there was a time when, when creating an open world on, you know less than two megabytes of space, which is what you had for a long time, it meant that there couldn't actually be too much permanence in the world, is that everything that was in between the major the major names, the major pronouns, had to be generated on the fly. And so there there was a the the illusion of having this great fully realized world, but it was only realized by virtue of the fact that uh, it was generated on the fly at the moment and then it would disappear as soon as you turned around. Hmm. But I think the little things, too, the, the aspects that you do even in character creation that can change the world in your gaming experience. Sure. Skyrim's yeah. a great example. It's a fantasy game, so you can choose these different character races that you can play. And I think I played a Briton, which is essentially just a human who's good at magic because I want to play a wizard. But I've seen from actually Let's Plays, but also through talking to people I know who've played the game, too, who played it like as a Khajiit, which is like a cat person. Yeah, Khajiit. Yeah, you get a totally <laughs> different experience that you right. face fucking racism if you play certain races, like a mm. Dark Elf for Khajiit. A Khajiit essentially has, think of all the stereotypes that they throw at like, oh, you gypsy, blah, 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 you're just going to come steal from me. All of those are on the Khajiit, and you will hear people whisper behind your back. Mm. Mm-hmm. You'll hear people accuse you of things. They'll outright call you names. And that's something you don't get if you play a Nord. Right. And right. it changes your, your experience in the game, but it also may affect the way you play the game. In the Civil War between the Shadow Cloaks, who are kind of this nativist, isolationist, you know, rebel group who has a real undercurrent of racism in their thing, hmm. in their organization versus the Empire, 
if you're playing a Khajiit, you're a lot more likely to side with the Empire based on the experiences you've had. Not because you're like, oh, I'm going to do this, therefore I have to do. You just have experienced so much that you're fucking tired of racists right. after a while and you couldn't imagine siding with it. And it just, it's remarkably subtle, but it's those little things that depending on what you do in the game, your experience is different. Hmm. hmm. It's fantastic. Uh, and Patrick, uh, on another note, I want to jump to, because I mean, we seem to be talking a lot about Skyrim and Fallout. So Bethesda seems to be dominating the conversation. Um, we had this conversation a week ago, I think, um, and it didn't come up because I didn't play it. I didn't own a Dreamcast until I was in, it was roundly in my uh, late 20s um, about a what was a very uh, prominent predecessor to the open world games, which was Shenmue. Mm, um, yeah. Tell me about the you. You related an anecdote to me about the, about being in the world of Shenmue. That is something that is kind of unique to open world games. Sure, uh, Shenmue for me kind of strains the the definition of open world because it is open world in that you can go anywhere you want. You can move left and right. Um, it takes place in a Japanese village, and the village feels very vibrant. They did a tr- just tremendous job of modeling a lot of interesting people and interactions and places with a lot of depth. Um, that being said, that the the path that you can walk along the village is somewhat limited, mm-hmm. so it's sort of it, it's open in some sense. Um, but the thing that I, I realized was that I could close my eyes and walk down the streets of this imaginary town, uh, and it had become as real to me in my imagination as maybe walking down the street in my own town, because my my mind can't tell the difference in if the simulation has enough detail, has enough elements uh and it, p- it points to something that a, a good open world game or any a, any good world building in any game uh is the little details can make a profound difference in how real it feels to you and d- to your ability to, d- to inhabit that space uh i mean i went to shenmue i spent tons of uh my teenage character's time just hanging out in the arcade <laughs> <laughs> playing the games inside the the arcade in the in the place right but um yeah, it, it's it's too bad. There was originally the proposed idea was that there was going to be continuity between they were can release it as a trilogy, right? And that, so the things that you did with your character were going to persist as well, uh, and that didn't end up coming to pass. Uh, but it, they did a tremendous job of of creating a space that felt real and vibrant and alive, and it's something I, I would like to see more of that level of heart. I think in in more world creation, open world. Hmm. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Doctor Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Atom. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? 
And we're back with this month's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. We're talking about open world games. Uh, and I wanted to return to, we've uh, sort of skittered around the edge here. I wanted to talk about the Fallout franchise. Now, this is one of the, um, the instances where Fallout, of course, began as a isometric RPG, turn-based RPG on PC platform. Um, and I've actually heard that the RPG is considered, the original one, the turn-based one, is considered an open world game itself, um, even even though it would eventually spawn a first-person perspective open world game that we know today of the, the Fallout franchise. Uh, and I'd say it qualifies, and I'm wondering if any of you guys have any serious disagreement about the first and second installments of Fallout being considered as such. No? Moving ne- on. I've never played it. Yeah, oh, I haven't okay. played it either. I mean, let's just put it this way. Uh, the idea that you, as as a waste, the Wastelander, um, that you get to define yourself, much like the rest of the game, is you have a giant world to uh, to follow, many quests, many quests branching off of the main quest to establish yourself, um, and you have a large overworld for your traveling between places left in the wasteland. Um, and all of it's so familiar if you were to play Fallout 3 or New Vegas or beyond, and you understand that sort of thematically they had figured that all out at the, at the beginning of the first one. Um, there's just less hoarding in uh, in the first and second games. <laughs> I think that's a goal of every video game. <laughs> Accumulation. Yeah, and then they let you have houses now, too, so you have a place to just throw it all in a pile. <laughs> And you feel proud rather than shame as you do in real life. <laughs> oh God! If we're not gonna, I mean, if we're not gonna sort of talk about the first two incarnations of Fallout, then let's talk about Fallout Three, because um, Fallout Three really was a pivotal moment in for that franchise, where Fallout the first two were always had always had this sort of mythic status among uh, role playing game fans, CRPG fans, um, who always thought about it as being one of the best. Uh, RPGs that's ever been made and bringing it into the sort of Bethesda Bethesda Bethesdaized mode really launched it into the stratosphere Um, and it did so with Fallout 3 which was of course them taking you as a wastelander from a vault but this time in the capital wasteland the basically the ruins of Washington DC Um, and the plot centers around much like the first game a uh, scientific project to create clean water in a irradiated land and a potential civil war between various factions of the Brotherhood of Steel. Um, I'd like to like the poll you guys and like if you guys played it right away, what your impressions are. If you go back and replay it, as I do endlessly, <laughs> anyone want to jump in, Kinsey? Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't played Fallout Three in a long time, but I it, that was one of those games where like. I played like a smattering of Fallout 1 and 2 because I'm, I'm honestly not a PC gamer, but I was like, all right, so this Fallout 3 game, whatever that is, is coming out. <laughs> and so I should probably like know a little bit about what I'm getting into. So I played a little bit of 1 and 2, Brotherhood of Steel on the PS2. Sure. Um, but then I remember I got the like collector's edition. I was so excited. And like it, the thing I love about Fallout is that it is also so tongue in cheek. Yes. Yes. That yes. I yes. I just got so excited that I completely forgot what your question was because right. <laughs> all I'm thinking about right now is when I started my Fallout Three game and it's like you take the goats and you do all this stuff and I'm like this is a magical place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do get that sense that you're setting up. Yeah, at the beginning you're setting up stuff that's going to be so interesting and the way in which you start to discover the world with that iconic stepping out into the sunlight mm-hmm. and being blinded by the sun that you've never seen in your life and then also you as the player being like holy shit look at this place <laughs> it's trash yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you instantly get killed by like a rad scorpion right. <laughs> <laughs> you get your ass chased down a hill by a mole rat yeah. and then you 
have to reload. That's an exciting part of any one of these games that you see the world outside of the initial cutscene stuff, and you're like, "Holy crap, this is fucking scary!" Yeah. <laughs> and you just everything in the world, whether it's a wolf or like a mole rat or something, it looks like it can kill you, and you spend a lot of time running away and slowly building your confidence. And mm-hmm. what I love about the Fallout universe, especially in three, because I came to it later. Uh, my first open world game from Bethesda was Skyrim. Hmm. That I was never really an open world game guy before that. And I just heard nothing but people praising the hell out of this game. So I'm like, okay, I'll pick up Skyrim. I loved it. I mean, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. And it was because of how much I loved Skyrim that I was going to try um, try Fallout 3 because I heard great things about that one too. And I loved it. I think it's a lot of it too is the world of Fallout is just so rich and full of miniature stories that are happening everywhere. Like, you can see the beginning of something on a terminal, and you're basically looking at a corpse of this world. And oftentimes you can sort of do your own little visual autopsy and found out, find out what happened in this building. Hmm. So hmm. even just wandering about, like, you go in and you see a bunch of dead people all over this fault, and you're like, what happened here? And you can actually piece it together right. through the pieces of evidence in there. And... I I just I love that about that world because the the world of Fallout is a character. It's the one mm. consistent character that carries over into Fallout New Vegas and Fallout 4, and I'm so much in love with that world that each one of these installments does such a great job of immersing you in it because I'd never played one or two. Hmm. And it has such a great entry point. Yeah. That it doesn't feel like I'm lost having not done it. I'm missing out on stuff that add to that world. But it's not like I'm going to be ever completely lost in it. Right. Right. Patrick? Yeah. Uh, so Fallout was a huge, huge deal for me when I played Fallout 3. Uh, and just the, the music and the, the scenarios, it is a very rich, inhabitable place. Going back and playing it after I've played uh, even just New Vegas, it's funny because it feels, even though it is an open world game... It, the places where I can't go feels really obvious. Huh. Oh, yeah. There's a right. lot of times oh, yeah. when they put a pile of rubble in your way, just right where you need to right. need to go. And so there's places where they sort of trench you into a certain path to go to a certain place, um, which is frustrating in a, in for me in a game where you're reveling in the freedom to be able to go and do whatever you want. Right. Um, one of the things I with open world games, you talk about running from the rad scorpions that's kind of fun is that you encounter sometimes some of the same adversaries over time. And so what beats your ass in the beginning becomes something that you can, you know, take on later on. It sort of adds to the feeling of, of power. Uh, did any of you guys do in, if you played new Vegas, did anybody cheat, uh, to, that is run to Vegas or take the north path no no it's way more dangerous (laughs) yes that's the whole point is that you know exactly where you're going to go because it's the name of the game right but you have to go through like a minefield of oh my god death claws which are like lizard monsters of death (laughs) Mm -hmm. and if you're smart you can probably sneak around them Um, takes a lot of stealth boys takes a lot of stealth boys and that's actually something I kind of love again the question of object permanence that if you know in Fallout 3 where your dad is and you don't have to go hunting him down like a detective you can skip right to it Mm -hmm. and you pass a lot of quests and you lose a lot of the flavor of the game but you can go there right away and the same thing that happens in Fallout New Vegas with the guy who shot you that you're it's like a murder mystery for yourself you don't know who shot you in the head and, and buried you alive 
but you're hunting this person down, and if you know where to find them, they're there. I found them on accident. Yeah, I had the same experience <laughs> with Fallout 3 where I was just experiencing other tangents, and I happened upon a building in the middle of the wasteland, and I go downstairs and, oh, right, this is where my dad is. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. You know, you didn't even have to, you know, put the put the quest on and follow the little, like, like icon to tell you where to go. You could just stumble on these things, and it can unfold naturally. And know? these people who have the information are not playing, you know, keep away with you. And right. actually, what's really kind of fun is the game expects that to some extent, that mm-hmm. you may accidentally come across this information so those other quests are still there um i know that one of the things to get a piece of information from the radio dj in fallout 3 3 dog he sends you on a quest that involves this dish that you have to get from this like lunar lander that's in a in a abandoned and populated by super mutants uh, museum (laughs) and you have to fight your way through there get this dish and attach it to the top of the washington monument so he can have a bigger broadcast signal and um I found my dad before I finished that mission because I found the next step in the quest on my own. So I went back to Three Dog to do that mission, and I got, I think, some extra karma, and he was just like, you didn't even have to help me. He had a dialogue <laughs> built in oh, interesting. for that saying, you know, that's really good of you. You actually, I, I heard you found your dad without my information, but you did that anyways. Mm, yeah. And it's little things like that. Like Also, on the other side of the equation, if you decide to play a total bastard, you can kill Three Dog, yeah. <laughs> right. and the game, the game uh, compensates for that. Yeah, they and, replace him, right? Or... Yeah. Yeah, there's like this, this grumpy intern lady who doesn't want to be a DJ who says <laughs> things like, well, Three Dog would probably say something clever, but some asshole killed him. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. It's like the game sort of has all of these hidden layers that unless you do it in all these different ways, you'll never find. And that's what I love about those, those Let's Plays online is people other than me play games in ways other than me. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I didn't know about the radio DJ thing because I like to play a white hat. I'm a good guy. I don't want to kill three dog. I like three dog. But to know that they have a thing in place for that rather than just making everyone invincible. Right, right. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you move forward uh, with, with New Vegas, which, I mean, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about New Vegas. Um, but it was, actually, it was a game that was, um, unlike Fallout 3, that was done by Bethesda, their studio, uh, Obsidian, which was the uh, remnants of the same studio that made the original Fallout, um, took the Fallout 3 engine and made another Fallout, another Fallout of theirs, set in a different setting, of course, in Las Vegas, uh, post Wasteland, um, and it's largely considered superior to the first Fallout 3. Plus, it has Wayne Newton doing the voice of the DJ, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is awesome. I guess the one thing that I my gripe is that they had so 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 fewer. Uh, songs on the radio than they did for Fallout 3. But I mean, I think it wasn't, you, you guys agree that it was an overall much better experience going through New Vegas, even though it was less original because you didn't get that sense of like, like just complete marvel at what the world was, but it was different and it did feel better. The, some, somehow being in the world felt better in New Vegas. There's a lot Can more. I- there's there is more detail. Uh, there's both, they felt like more scope. There, uh, You can wander huge swaths of this open wasteland and the places where you can't go doesn't feel as doesn't feel as obvious if, if more of a sense of expanse hmm. but then there's also more detail if you go to the strip right you go to you go to the remnants of vegas there's a lot going on with the sort of the culture inside the different casinos and the politics between the different factions 
uh, is more complex and I think richer than uh, anything that you found in three. It was mm. sort of the next iteration. For the soundtrack, this is where mods come in. Yeah, of course. Of <laughs> yeah. course. All PC gamers. Yeah, <laughs> Master Race. PC ga- yeah. I mean, we, we should jump to that now because, you know, one of the things that I had in my notes uh, for Skyrim, but it totally applies for Fallout and it totally applies for the, the Fallouts and the new Fallout, as well as all the Bethesda games, is that modding can make this almost infinitely replayable game because you can swap out any number of elements up to it including making a totally different type of game using the same game engine and now this is something of course that's being experimented on the xbox one where now console players are for the first time able to take games were created for the pc version of fallout 4 and mod them on their their console um and i want to get your guys sense of like any experiences you have with that and uh whether you think that breaks the experience, makes the experience, or or neither. Well, both. I mean, yeah. I'm in the same boat as Kinsey is, and I'm a console gamer. Um, the very thought of using a keyboard and a mouse at the same time to me is just weird. <laughs> I look I, like I've never touched a computer before if I try to play a PC game. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, <laughs> the one thing that the, the, the PC games have in them is the mods, and if that's removed, then I have no reason to become a PC gamer. I really don't mm. if I can do that stuff. Because sometimes it's just, this is amusing. Like, Turning all of the dragons in Skyrim into Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah, or Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Things like that are fun. I've seen it where they do a graphic mod where they make the universe more cartoony. I've seen all sorts of things. One of the mods that I really liked for Fallout 4 was you have this dialogue tree you can work your way through, but you don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. And changing it so instead of sarcastic, Instead of choosing a sarcastic remark, you find out what that sarcastic right. remark is because right. sometimes you think you're just being funny, but you end up saying something really hurtful. And I'm like, <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they're benign. Like for Fallout 4, um, I the mechanic that I really find the most grating is when you get a settlement and you've populated it, then you constantly – you're doing other stuff. And in the middle of exploring or being in a battle, you get an error message that says, your settlement is under attack. And mm. so you have to like – if you don't want shit to be fucked up and you don't want people to die and your settlers to be unhappy, you kind of have to like fast travel there as quickly as you can and help them fight off the fight off the menace. And that kind of like busy work is I, so I got a mod. The the one mod that I played with is the mod to turn that off. Is that once you have a settlement, there are no attacks. It's fine. You can go about your business. I like settlement attacks. I just like not knowing. I, I want my settlement that I've spent a lot of time building, like, rocket launchers and turrets and guards who I've armed really well. I like to know that they can defend themselves without me being there. Right. I'm not that fucking vital <laughs> to the running of this place. And I think that that was my big beef with the way it was done, is just if I don't show up in a certain amount of time. It's sometimes in the middle of a goddamn dungeon, and I can't come back in yeah. time. So wouldn't it be kind of nice if I found, like, they fought it off right. and know that my... 300 plus defense rating means something if I'm not there. <laughs> I so wish they did that in the console. Ver- like something, like even a dice roll kind of thing where it's like, maybe they can do it themselves. Right, right. You know, and just have it let me know instead of just like, nope, failed. Yeah. Like, Damn right. it. My settlement was awesome. Yeah, it's like I'm the only person in the world who can fucking do anything. Yeah. It's like Preston Garvey has another mission. I'm the fucking general of the Minutemen. Can I please delegate? Yeah. It's like, you work for me. How about you go deal with those people who have the kidnapped kid? You're a hero. 
<laughs> Why don't you do it, Preston Garvey? There's a bunch of these NPCs with Minutemen uniforms just walking around now. Let's just send three of them over there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. So maybe not everything you're looking for is modded yet, but it yep. will be. Yeah. That's oh. the beauty of mods is that games that are years old only get better. And sometimes things that you've always wanted them to have, there are elements that can get integrated and breathe new life in them. Uh, for me, the most modded game I've ever played, I played Skyrim. I, I have, I have, oh, I don't know, 600 hours, 700 hours in Skyrim, and I've never ah. beat the main storyline. Wow. See, that says something right there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and my favorite time that I've gone into it, I put in mods so that you can freeze to death. Uh, so Ooh. there's exposure mods, and you need to eat, drink, and sleep. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I realized is that the engine they actually put in there is food everywhere in Skyrim. There are cooking systems, there are inns distributed all over the place, and there is no reason to ever use any of those things. Mm. Um, and so by modding it in a way that actually like makes the game harder, all of a sudden I'm stocking up on cheese wheels and I <laughs> right. Uh, there's all of these game elements that have no purpose because they survival in that sense is not a big part of how they designed it. But to me, it makes it richer, makes it more fun, makes it more challenging, mm-hmm. and makes makes the place and the environment, and the character feel more real uh, by adding that stuff in. And and you're right because the I, I saw similar there was a survival mode mod for Fallout Three that I played very briefly because it was very hard. Um, and and now I'm hearing about Skyrim because in Fallout Four they had an, an update where they basically provided a, a survival uh, difficulty level where you could do that. So the thing about mods is is that even if console players are blissfully unaware of what's happening is that they eventually roll through and become design elements either in the same game or later games is that inevitably they're doing things that are so revolutionary or at least um, they're at least honing, parroting down sort of the uh, the things that are the most fun that they're going to influence fur- uh, further games, later games. I think it's true. There's another thing that Fallout 4 did that Fallout 3 didn't have, which is the crafting system. Right. Where you are really a hoarder in Fallout, that you're taking stuff out of garbage cans, and most of the time you're just doing it so you can sell stuff to either fix your weapons and armor or buy ammo. And that you spend so much time collecting, like, old newspaper, hat, and you just have all this crap on you. And what I love with the crafting system is suddenly it's not useless. It's not stuff that I just sell right away because I need the cloth from that hat. I need the glue from this thing. Or I need adhesive. And like, oh, my God, an aluminum can. I don't have any aluminum. (laughs) And it was the weirdest thing. I think this is how deep into playing Fallout 4 I was is that Sam was working on stuff for this very studio. And I went with him to, like, Home Depot, and there's a bunch of copper pipes. And I went, oh, I need copper. <laughs> that was my reaction. I'm like, oh, shit. Um, like, I need that. Because you're constantly building on your base or you're building weapons and armor. But it made all of these things that had just been a bunch of useless garbage that you just ex- exchange for money into something that is valuable and things that are rare. Like, when you find that little thing of wonder glue, you get so excited. Right, right. <laughs> I both loved and hated that about Fallout 4. Mainly mm. my like kind of obsessive personality where I'm like, "Oh, I can build settlements. These are going to be the best fucking settlements yes. ever," you know. Yeah. But then it'd be like it'd be like tin can tin can tin can aluminum can. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but then I found myself constantly having to fast travel back because I would constantly <laughs> be over encumbered because I have like 500 cans and like all this other crap on me. But then again, if you look at it a different way, I'd be building my settlements and I would run out of steel. Yes. And yeah. then I'm like, well, scavenging mission time. But then I, 
every time I couldn't leave something behind, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, I'm on a story mission. I don't have time for this shit. I can't turn around and go back. But I'm going to pick up that microscope. I need that microscope. That shit is gold. Not literally gold, because that's stuff too, but oh my God, when you find a microscope. Any sort of science lab and you walk in and there's like multiple, you're just like, yes. It does. It doesn't just make random stuff that weighs this much. It's worth that much that you get in Fallout 3. Each thing actually becomes an object that has a purpose that you can take apart. It's so exciting. It, but I mean, follow. I mean, we're, we've been t- just talking about Fallout Four in general, <laughs> like, uh, and so it's important to the sort of obviously the things that it did really well. One of them was um, the took crafting elements that had been a staple of other games. It um, kind of, I think, really refined the FPS gunplay that started off really poor in Fallout Three and got better by New Vegas. Um, and then settlement building, which was, I guess, their nod to sort of the fervor of around Minecraft, is that they were sort of letting people build their own persistent villages and whatnot. Um, but settlement building actually changed the way I played Fallout. Oh, I'm sure mm-hmm. it, it no, changed my relationship to the world. But uh, but I would contend, and I think there was a there was a groundswell of people who had criticism about Fallout Four in that the the meme was you took the RP out of my G, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and you compare the sort of the complexity of the missions, what you can do, what you can achieve through dialogue and through your various skills or your attributes um, through quests, they kind of almost totally, they nerfed it, I guess you could say. Well, the the game mission stuff, but I'd say there's actually more R and or P. Be, and it was stuff that wasn't happening in the game. It was stuff that was happening in my head. I completely hmm. agree. I felt way more attached to the settlements instead of like, in some games you like liberate a settlement, like you'll go and there's a handful of enemies and then, yay, the settlement's liberated. Good job. Yeah, I'm leaving now. But yeah. in this one, I felt like I had such a stake in it. Like, yeah. you know, Hangman's Alley was my marketplace. Spectacle Island was my weird destination dive bar that I made. Like, hmm. I had hmm. it gave me such a different, like, flavor to work with. And it made me feel way more attached to the world. I guess the thing that I'm pointing to, and I certainly felt this. I mean, I, lo- I love Fallout 4. Unfortunately, I haven't played Far Harbor. I have not. Uh, it's good so I far. I haven't dove into it yet. Um, is, is the idea that... Um, there were solutions to problems that weren't go here and kill or go here and fetch. Mm-hmm. Um, where, whereas in the previous iterations of Fallout, there was almost always more than one way to get through and resolve a situation. And sometimes it was a dialogue option. Sometimes it was talking to another person or or uh, killing another person beforehand. Um, and they really pared down on that with Fallout 4. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the more you put into it, the less refined each piece can be, even right. if it's prettier. I mean, I just think they made priorities. They just made priorities oh, yeah. for it to be more of a first-person shooter game and more of a crafty um, but, uh, settlement game. But than- with the settlement game, I found that because I had settlers whose responsibility for their safety I had in my lap... Hmm. I, it affected the way I looked at other parts of the game. Like, I had people who worked at shops who were ghouls. So I can't fucking side with the Brotherhood of Steel who are racist against ghouls. Right. right. Um, that's one of my people. One of my people is that. I have people who are, I'm, I'm friends with, you know, Nick Valentine, so I can't be anti-synth. I mean, there's a little things like that, and he's a story character, but the I, like the, again, the ghoul shopkeeper did more to make me anti-brotherhood than just about anything. Hmm. That's one of my people. Hmm. And he's got the same voice as the arsonist detective from <laughs> L.A. Noir, which was kind of cool. <laughs> but I, I really love that little thing. And also, um, in Fallout 3, I have an apartment 
But it's really just a glorified box that I can leave stuff that's too heavy for me to carry in. That you can make a bathtub full of money in. Yeah. 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 That I can just I can just throw this there because I don't have enough weight right now to carry a fat boy, you know? And right. I'm going to leave that in, you know, I'll keep my missile launcher here because uh, it just weighs too much for me to carry around. Or I've got all these neat little trophies. But the beautiful thing with the settlement is that it is my trophy. I built that house over there, and I put that rocket launcher on there. And finally, I get super excited when ghouls try to attack it because I can see that it works. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also, instead of you know this just being a box that I go to, I never fucking talk to anybody in Megaton after doing those missions. Mm-hmm. I walk in and out, and there's just a bunch of sprites moving in the background. Mm-hmm. But when it's my settlers... Um, I end up spending a lot of time walking through there, refining things, fixing things, changing the color of things. I changed all my settlers' clothes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you do, and you're like, you're like, ooh, I got the, I got the guy who's in charge of like the doctor's thing. I got him a lab coat. I was, oh! I was so excited for that because he wasn't just some dude. <laughs> he looked like a doctor, and little things like that really add to it. So I spend like three or four hours just tweaking my settlement. So then when I go out to find supplies or materials, I'm not. Just just going out on missions, I'm going on expeditions to mm. find stuff. Mm. Well and said. I'm like a part of the world rather than just this interloper who wanders through it and kills people. <laughs> you know, we were talking about the importance of object permanence uh, in open world games. It occurs to me most of them have that to a degree, but it's mm. not in Skyrim you can't you can't go blow up a wall with magic, and if you could, right. it, when you come back, the wall would be back yeah. because uh, those changes aren't recorded in memory because the world is so huge. But with the settlement spaces, you do create an environment where uh, you your impact on the environment is permanent, uh, and that, I think, is huge in creating a, a world that is relatable is to be able to make your mark on it and have that mark stay there. Right. Uh, and it, it's a goal, it's an ambition that you're seeing in more games and uh, not many games have, I think, fully delivered on, on that promise right. yet. And I think that I think that transition to, especially with the Fallout universe, because Mike, you and I have talked about post-apocalypse as a thing can be a little hard for some of us to take when we don't like ruminating on the post-apocalypse, but there's something about building a settlement and people being happy in the settlement that yeah. makes you feel a lot better about this shithole of a you know, a the post-nuclear future. The world is broken. I yeah. can have an impact, and the world is better because of it. Not just because, yeah. you know, in an intangible sense, that people have clean water now, but it's like there's a bunch of people that I could look at that I'm responsible for who are safe because of me, and they got a job farming because of me, and I'm right. excited that I can now afford to build that large water purifier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) well i we would totally be remiss if we didn't spend this time over in the next most obvious franchise to talk about and that of course is grand theft auto it is the one that started them all i'm surprised we didn't spend any time before talking about this but (laughs) maybe it's because it's not that interesting no that's not true um it's the it's the synonym for open world games i think and and like i said before i think people who don't know video games know Grand Theft Auto by reputation sheerly because it is because senators so, are screaming about yes, it because it's so popular. <laughs> um, so the but the so Grand Theft Auto was kind of like Fallout in that it started off as sort of a two D had two iterations of a two D game, which was a game that you're familiar with, which is you are a criminal driving around cars doing missions. You can steal cars, you can shoot people, you have to go do jobs for various unsavory elements. Um, but it really didn't catch on, uh, even though I think there was a Dreamcast version of GTA 2, I think, I think or play- so. and PlayStation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a console game. But it didn't really uh, explode until Grand Theft Auto 3 came out for the PlayStation 2. Um, and I think that changed everyone's perceptions of what could be possible in a video game in terms of it being open, 
these emergent elements and creating a world that was just fun to run around in. So I think the first thing that I want to talk about uh, is, if anyone wants to pick up the topic, is um, how is the how is the difference between playing something like a Grand Theft Auto Three, where there is the sort of the scintilla of a story, but you have a silent protagonist who um, just goes along with whatever serves whoever he wants to, and you're really just led along by by the leash, and it's just window dressing to create this goofy world and to create some pretty heroic spectacular stunts that happen in between going from that and then transitioning to something like vice city where you actually start to have personalities and you start to have characters that are enduring well i think that's always the trade-off i mean you see that in games now that in a bethesda game i get to choose everything about my character including their name what they look like um that they have the personality i want them to within limits of course and then you have something like say Witcher 3 or you have the Grand Theft Auto games where there is a protagonist who has a name and has a personality in cutscenes and i kind of have to navigate and interpret that personality that Nico Bellic is a character who has a personality but i get to choose whether he's a psychopath or not right whether um, he enjoys the things that he does or whether he revels in it and, do- and maximizes the carnage, I think you can go kind of both ways. And I think one of the things I found that I didn't expect with Grand Theft Auto V, which was the first version of this series, that you had multiple protagonists, was that two of them are pretty standard Grand Theft Auto protagonists. You have Franklin and you have Michael. Michael is this former career criminal is going through a midlife crisis. He's in witness protection. He does not like his life. Things are easy, but it's boring. And his family is kind of fucking horrible people. (laughs) (laughs) And then there is um, Franklin, who is a low-level criminal working as a repo man in the inner city, who is smarter than the people around him, who's capable and wants to do more than just being a gangster. That if he's going to be a criminal, he's going to be smart. And and the big part of the story is Michael taking Franklin under his wing. But then there's the third character, which is Trevor. My favorite. <laughs> Trevor changed the way I played these games. I, I tend to play a white hat. I try to be a good guy. I, I spend a lot of time the first time playing Grand Theft Auto 4 obeying traffic laws. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know that the cops wouldn't pull me over. Uh-huh. There's only one way to find out. There, that's how I found out. And uh, the same thing is I would hit people with a car, often on accident, and I would apologize verbally. <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry. You, the Can- oh. It's the Canadian way of playing video games. It is. Yes. I, I would feel bad. So I would take – I might have sort of interpreted Nico Bellic as this guy who he's willing to do this stuff, but he doesn't enjoy it. And he's going to navigate through that. And that's how I treat Michael and Franklin, too. But Trevor, Trevor seems to be Rockstar's interpretation of who they think their players are. Because yeah. <laughs> right. he's just a crazy psychopath. He kind of looks like Harvey Picar from American Splendor. Yes. <laughs> uh, who is just bonkers. And he just attacks people. When you jump into him sometimes, he's waking up out of a dumpster. I was once thrown out of a casino while I'm jumping into his body. And he's like, just show me the rules where it says I have to wear pants. <laughs> and playing Trevor kind of killed the white hat to some degree. And I don't mm. know when it happened where That's I would start doing little things. Like I'm on a motorcycle and I'm driving up the mountain and there's like a coyote or something wrong alongside. Nudge my car to the right <laughs> and take out that coyote. Yep. 
And I'm just like, <laughs> I start doing things that I never did in these games, the things that these games have a reputation for being. It's, that's so interesting. I mean, this is kind of the point why I brought it up is that, uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto 3 is about carnage. It's about the idea for you to be completely unleashed from your morality. You know, if you, if you want to, you know, just drive your car on the sidewalk and tr- plow through about 20 people, um, the game's going to keep generating more of them in front of you, mm-hmm. so they'll go over your hood, you know? Um, and they, the way they sold it in Grand Theft Auto 3 is that you play a f- nameless, faceless, voiceless dude who just sort of skates through and he drives and then he, in the end, he shoots people and then he wins. Um, you get a character in, the, a Ray Liotta character in, uh, in Vice City, but by the time you get to, and then we'll talk about uh, San Andreas, but by the time you get to Grand Theft Auto 4, they're kind of almost trying to, uh, it's almost an apology of sorts, a mea culpa, because Nico Bellic is a sympathetic character, a, a, pro, a Grand Theft Auto protagonist. He is the kind of guy who will, after paying for a prostitute in a car, which is something you can do from the Grand Theft Auto 3 on, he will feel ashamed of himself and cry. Um <laughs> So, so it's it's kind of telling that they got to the point where, and then they, of course they went back with Trevor. Yes. They got to the point where they were realizing, like, oh, we we might want to inject a little, uh, a, a few facets to the idea of being a character, a personality in the world of Grand Theft Auto. So, so much so that they can make Nico Bellic this very sympathetic character about a guy who was sort of chased away from his home in somewhere in Eastern Europe um, to join his his cousin in a new life in America. Um, and make it so, oh, he's just not some kind of self-serving psychopathic criminal. He's actually some guy who's forced to do these things because he has no other option to make money. You know, he's kind of falls into these things, but he's still is, uh, he still is open-minded. He's very open-minded. He feels bad about things and he at least is given the choice to the chance to do right in certain situations, you know, but that that's all abandoned if you play him a different way. Right. Yeah. Like he can be that guy, sensitive guy. And the next thing you do is just go mow over it. You know, civilians. Yeah, it's I, I kind of like getting to choose the opportunity to, to do that. But being able to, to choose your own sort of character too. Fallout 4 is the first game where instead of being like the Charlie Brown teacher that just you wah, 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 and then somebody says something back to you because you chose the thing on a chart. Um, you have your character actually interpret that into dialogue that whether you play a male or female character, there's two voice actors hmm. that act out all of the things that your characters say. And um, it puts that kind of interpretation on it. So you can work within that character's personality that is presented in the game and interpret it and come up with your version of it. And again, I never mowed over coyotes when I'm playing Michael or Franklin, only Trevor. And it was weird because it felt like I'm kind of honoring the character when I do that. (laughs) So I don't know. Do you guys ever have that sort of thing too? Do you find yourself playing the game differently based on the pre-written personality of the characters in the game? I definitely did, particularly in Grand Theft Auto V, because like, I wanted to play like true to each of those characters. Why? I don't know. It's an open-world game. I should make these decisions. But I didn't. I don't know. I was like, Franklin wouldn't do that. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so we have this idea that uh, part of the joy of open-world is that it does give you more personal choice. Grand Theft Auto V, though, was definitely, there are a few marketplaces where I wanted to make a different choice than what was presented to me. I think about the, the torture sequence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as being like, it's, I want him to attack the guy who's making me torture people, which is totally, I feel like Trevor would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't, you are you are on rails at that point. You are, you are forced down a certain path. But uh, in terms of 
all the stuff that comes in between. I, I think in between the missions is a lot of time where you get to write your own story. You get to you get to have your own meaning for for what's happening. And yeah, I definitely I was I was a lot worse of a person as as Trevor <laughs> just in general. I, I felt like I could. Like mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't judging myself nearly. Well, it's just Trevor. I mean, obviously <laughs> he would murder all these people. Yeah. Like no, it's fine. It was almost like an excuse to play the bad guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, he it's was he was a wonderful scapegoat. It's not me doing it. It's Trevor. <laughs> well, we're going to try to we're going to try to uh, close up here, but I think uh I think there's definitely something we want to we should talk about before we get to high point low point, and that is of course I I really want to talk about The Witcher 3 and then the future of open world games. So, uh we didn't leave much time to talk about something I think is really interesting. I think so for for my money the evolution of CG Projekt Red's uh, Witcher franchise into an open world game is interesting because it was a, sort of a linear hack and slash adventure action adventure game before then. Um, it's a marvel of a video game. Oh yeah, it is the densest, most beautiful, perhaps most complex video game of where the uh, the, thing, the events are actually scripted of where you know, the choices have actual things that uh events that happen and narratives that happen i'm only probably five or six hours into the game because i just haven't been able to make it a priority and i'm blown away with what i see absolutely impressed a a, a quality of game that is like you could have a movie or a tv series that's 80 or 100 hours long it's simply astounding um Thoughts on Witcher? I love it. Yeah. That's like the... Oh my gosh, it's amazing. So The Witcher 2, even though it's not open world, I think it's like, it's a wonderful intro to the series because like the first one is on PC mm-hmm. and not a PC gamer again, but it's also clunky. The story is good, but the rest of it is almost unplayable. It's really, really difficult to control. Yeah. But... In The Witcher 2, it starts where you lost your memory, and you're like, great. I don't need to know that. So that's, having... a, that's a great convention for them to do, so you don't have to play the, the original one. Yeah, but it was so good, and it, I, I actually played The Witcher 2 when The Witcher 3 came out, because hmm. I was like, you know, I want to get into this series, but I don't want to start with the third one. And it's short, it's not open world, it's like 20 hours long, but story-wise, it absolutely hooked me. So I jumped into The Witcher 3, and... I played three hundred hours, three four hundred hours of The Witcher Three. Ah, wow! And I'm in the middle of the DLC right now. And even though, like, it's funny, like when I talk about The Witcher Three, it's it's like when you play Grand Theft Auto. At least for me, like when the character has her own identity, I I don't say I mm-hmm. as much. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, well, Trevor did this, and Franklin right. did this, right. and but in a game like Skyrim, I'll say I when I'm talking about it. Me too. Hmm. But I find myself doing that in The Witcher Three. I'm not Geralt, but I always say it. Like I'm like, oh yeah, this is what I did, and it was so amazing. Hmm. Like I feel like me and me and Geralt, we're like <laughs> bros. <laughs> <laughs> but even though like we're not the same at all, obviously. But I I find myself the game puts me in this position that I actually relate to this person who has nothing to do with me. Is not like me right. in the slightest. Your world is totally different than his world, obviously. Yeah, yes. but. I don't know. I just feel at one with it when I'm playing the game. And it's so immersive, even though that's not a character I created. This is not a personality I've tailored. Right. But yeah, I think that's the thing I liked about it, too. And I'm only a couple hours into Witcher 3 is that there is an established character again. But 
there is such a wonderful ability to maneuver and shape that character that you're told that as a witcher, he's just a heartless mercenary and he's gruff and he doesn't let anyone get by with yeah. anything. He's, he's kind of like a Khajiit, too, in the fact that he's a witcher, which is kind of a different race that's discriminated against. Yeah, mm-hmm. So he's constantly wandering in a situation where people sus- are suspicious of him or outright hostile of, uh, to him. Yeah, that you're a professional monster hunter who's only in it for the money. You don't do anything for free, that you never give anyone a an easy time that you're just like, oh, I see you've got a broken leg and there's a monster trying to kill you. You got any money on you? Right. And I guess the way I tried to interpret it is that that's his reputation, that the game is telling me that is his reputation, but I get to decide who Geralt is. Mm -hmm. And I think what I decided was that my version of Geralt is all talk, that he's deep down a softy, and that stuff where he's training the young girl is he lets her get away with a lot of stuff when Mm -hmm. I play him. Mm -hmm. But also, I do a ton of shit for free for people. Oh. Because that's my reputation. I'll grumble about it. Oh, oh I don't know. What's that? And I'll, I'll do all those grumpily dialogues, but I've decided that deep down, he's a good person who can easily be pushed into being altruistic. Mm-hmm. And I like, because I can choose that through the dialogue options. And I think that's the thing, the reason why you're saying I may, because I feel I'm saying I too. Mm-hmm. I love that. I feel like I get to choose who this character is, even though there's a voice actor who gets to do the performance. Uh, well, we don't. Well, I, I want to do this last bit. Everyone, just just play. Just play Witcher Three, everyone. You just don't don't take our word for it. Um, dun dun dun. <laughs> uh, the last bit is um, open world games. Sort of something that is now at least elements of it have been integrated into lots of games. You pick up a AAA game, you're likely to have a big world to explore, even if it's linear or have sort of hub based gameplay. I'm really more interested to know what you guys think about the future of what open world games is. I mean, we have the, we're at the sort of the beginning of the idea of uh, popular widespread VR for, for consoles and for PC. Um, and we have things like No Man's Sky coming on the horizon where the idea, simply the game, the game uh, design idea is let's create a universe that is so large that you're never likely to meet another actual person ever. That it would be that the odds are so mathematically unlikely that you would run into another player. You're really just exploring this vast universe on your own. That sounds uh, heavenly. <laughs> it sounds awesome and horrible all at the same time to me. I mean, and and but you can imagine if the if our sites are to set the scale of our open world games so large as to be as large as a universe or as a galaxy. Um, where are where's the boundaries of our open world games? Well, I guess it's a breadth versus depth hmm. is always the question. How much stuff is there to do in the game versus how pretty is it and how in-depth is that stuff? Do I get a cutscene where I get to talk to the guy who played Colonel Ty on <laughs> Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> or do I get text, but then I get more complex missions? I mean, mm. that's there's a limit to how much you can put on a disc. There's a limit to how much you can put in a game. There's a limit to the amount of of time that these programmers and designers can spend making this stuff. Right. And it's kind of amazing that they've gotten as much as they have. Mm. So maybe not dealing with other people and just exploring in a relaxing way is one end of the spectrum, but then also bumping into a bunch of people who kind of ruin your fun is, is the other part of, of multiplayer. <laughs> right. Or, or say some, something like Star Citizen would be a, would be a very uh, a counter example where they're creating an open galaxy where you can fly around wherever you want to, that's persistent, that presumably you can work together or against other people who are there. So it seems like the ba- the bounds of this are quite open. Yeah, well, it's also it's against the limits of your procedural generation, mm-hmm. which is to say that if you are creating a game that is building the environments itself, how, how good are those environments? How invested can you get? 
in something that is on some level randomized. Uh, I think even back to uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 had alleyways that there was no reason ever to go into. There was nothing interesting there. There was no mission that would take you there. But there was a unique piece of graffiti that mm-hmm. some some designer made that just for that one spot. Mm-hmm. Um, in some of these games that had sort of uh, these open universe, uh, really ambitious projects, they're trying to make a game that can make itself and stay, keep interesting, keep... Uh, and that is... That's a tall order. I, I'm really excited to see uh, if if they they pull off the promises that they've made because uh, it it promises to be a new era. Hmm. Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to No Man's Sky, but I'm also very like I don't I don't really know how to put it into words yet because like I'm really excited about it, but too big scares me. Hmm. I'm the person who on The Witcher you have question marks all over your map when you hear about a location from like a town, whatever. Sure. I can't have those question marks. <laughs> I cannot do it. Earlier, t- when I you gotta started- got to go take them down, right? Yeah. got to clear that board. When I started yeah. the DLC, I was so excited to jump into the story for The Witcher. I was so excited to jump into the story. But then I was like, there's new question marks. <laughs> can't have this. So I just wandered around to like fill out, like it's other games like Diablo. Like I want to sure. fill out the map. Sure. I want to- get these location markers out of my way so I know what's there and I know if I walk past it I'm not missing something. Hmm. So in a world that is like so big I probably can't explore it all right. it actually makes me kind of anxious that I'm like <laughs> I'm having so much fun but what am I missing? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well in the case of No Man's Sky it's if all of humanity spent nothing, all of their time doing nothing but, re- but finding planets, we're still missing it. Oh, <laughs> oh, the world doesn't look bright for us completionists. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with High Point, Low Point. Hey, I'm Casey Doran, and this is... Mike Gillis. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we just wanted to take a break here and tell you about something special. We started our very own Patreon page. And Mike, tell our folks about what our Patreon page means to us. Well, I, one of the things that Casey and I have always wanted to do is to be able to do this professionally. We know that's a way off, but we would love to be able to do this. And this stuff actually does cost money. It, we've been yeah, actually, I mean, we got to pay the piper. we got to pay the piper somehow. <laughs> and by that, we mean our coke habit. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> Really, what we're coming down to is uh, we have made it possible that if you like the stuff that we do, that you can go to patreon.com forward slash. Do we it's still for, say? It's forward slash. Do we just say slash now? No, we say forward slash. Okay, so patreon.com <laughs> forward slash radio versus the Martians, or you can go into radio versus the Martians.com and uh, click on the big green button either on the right or bottom side of the screen. Mm-hmm. And join in. Let us know that you like what we do and you want more of it. And here's the kicker. Here's the thing. Oh, yes. We, as exclusive to subscribers on Patreon, will provide what we call Radio vs. the Martians Black Ops episodes. These are occasional extra fun size ones that if you give us like a dollar or more a month, you will have access to all sorts of things that are off the fucking books. It, this isn't fun size episodes. They're is- ecstatic size. They're like euphoria size episodes. This is like when you go yeah. trick or treating and you get a full sized candy bar. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be us just bullshitting with all your favorite co hosts, having fun with pop culture. And the stuff you come to expect from us, but in an exclusive off the books form. And if you get caught with this, we will disavow you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, visit our page on Patreon and RadioVersusTheMartians.com. And we're back. 
with Radio versus the Martians panel episode this month, Open World Games, we're jumping into a little segment we like to call High Point, Low Point. That's where we go to the top of the mountain and the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to start with you, Kinsey. What's your low point for Open World Games? So I have to admit, I've been thinking about this High Point, Low Point thing for like months. And I'm like, what is it going to be? And I actually think my High Point, my Low Point are the same. What? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll continue. Go on. You... It's it's the it's the discovery. It's the mm. I have all these question marks on my map. I want to know what everything is, and I'm so excited to walk around this world, have these little instances that I find, go into these caves, do these things, and I'm so excited, but then I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I have to go fill out all these stupid question marks. And I have to fill out this whole map, and I can't not do it. Hmm. I don't know why, wow. but it's like this daunting task. And I, so I have to do it because I'm a completionist mm-hmm. and I don't want to, but I do. Cause if I don't do it, I'm going to miss something <laughs> awesome. And I just know it around that corner is going to be this cave that I never would have had a quest to go in, but I'm going to go in there and there's going to be something wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I would say that's probably just a high point <laughs> because, I, no, because I think you, I think although you, you may feel like you said that sense of anxiety about not being able to catch it, I think you're doing it generally because you get a nice payoff for, for every single time, for yeah. every little hit that you get, you get a good, you get a good high out of it. You and know? it's kind of funny because I actually had my first experience in a game where I'm, you know, finding every location on this map. And it was not satisfying. Hmm. Like in uh, The Witcher 3, there's so many question marks. And some of them are just like hidden treasure, which is like the stupidest side quest ever. If you There's like 500 hidden treasure side quests. And like, or it's a monster nest or it's whatever. But in The Witcher 3, there's the Isles of Skellige. And it's just, it's like a, just a ton of little islands. And most of them are uninhabited and you can sail around and whatever. And you're sailing around to get all these question marks and your boat is just getting thrashed and attacked by sirens the whole fucking time. And I'm like, <laughs> is this worth it? It better be worth it. And I get there and it's like monster nest. <laughs> you spend an hour getting here, throw a bomb in here and get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're just you were just you're max, you're min maxing there, right? You're totally min maxing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, that's a good high low point, low high point. Uh, Mike, what about you? L- low point for OWG? Uh, well, as as a great man once said while stealing the USS Enterprise, <laughs> the more they overthink the plumbing, the easier it is to stuff up the drain. <laughs> uh, you know, these games. The sad reality is that when you have a game that does this many things. Like Grand Theft Auto, you can do all this stuff. You you can do thousands of things in Skyrim. You can spend years playing Fallout 4. But it's going to break every so often. Hmm. There's going to come to a point where the technology limitations just hit that wall. And sometimes it's it's kind of temporary and it's funny, like when you're playing Red Dead Redemption and you encounter a cougar and the game got mixed up and instead mixed him up with like a townsperson who's running around on his knees jerking his head around like but he's still (laughs) roaring like a cougar and the game is reacting to him like he's a cougar and he's trying to claw you to death running on his knees (laughs) or you get you know horses that fall into the sky or you get things that don't go right but you walk away and it's gone it's fine Mm -hmm. you know that's just the part of the game and sometimes these things are glorious and make for great YouTube videos but then every so often you get something that just breaks the game 
breaks the game and makes it unplayable or leaves part of the game unplayable. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, I was playing Skyrim and I was sent on a mission for the Companion, which is like the Mercenary Guild. And I'm supposed to rough up some dude, except when I get there, the dude seems to be invincible and I can't actually rough him up. The, the quest marker will not mark something as complete. So I have to kind of walk away from it. I try to go into an earlier save of the game. And this problem is still there. And I end up getting into this question of how much game progress am I willing to lose to be able to do this one thing? Wow. Skyrim did that to me a lot. It's the worst. And you've been playing this thing for so long and there's so many parts of it that you don't know what it was that kicked off that glitch. And I had to just not do those little recurrent side quests for the companions. I couldn't finish the hunting quests. I couldn't do those extra werewolf quests so I could get my cool werewolf power upgrades. I just had to walk away from it because I didn't want to lose all of this other stuff that I had done. But the worst, and this is the one that really hit me the hardest, is I really looked at even going... I hit this point in Fallout 4 where I logged on one day. My character could jump straight up. I could rotate but I couldn't walk forward, backward, or to the side. Uh, it was broken. I went to older game saves. It was there, too. I, I, I went back. Even I loaded up things from the very beginning of me having this game, and it was in all of them. The game was broken. Hmm. And I just suddenly felt all of this progress, because this is my thing. Is I'm, I'm, this is why I like games like uh, SimCity better than I like games like Warcraft or StarCraft, is that I don't want to rebuild a thing from scratch a thousand times. I want to have one ongoing project that I can tweak and I can build and I can make a little bit better. And when I have something like literally five days of progress put into this game and the DLCs hadn't even come yet. So there's all this stuff that I'm like, I don't want to start this game all over again. Hmm. I don't want to. St- I, I'm losing days of my life that I've poured into this. And because of a software glitch, it's basically saying, nope, you're done playing this game that you spent this money on. And I actually had to go searching on the Internet. It involved me having to unload the game from my computer and go to the one that saved on their cloud or whatever. And it took me literally five hours to repair this. Wow. Um, And watching these little numbers tick up on my screen, on my Xbox One, you know, loading screen saying 3%, 2%. It's pulling it off of this cloud where it's saved on an extra thing. And it fixed it finally. Mm. But I spent a good day being terrified that I'd thrown all of this work into something that I can't complete. And I don't even get to enjoy all of the things that are going to come out that I've already paid for. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of stuff that because I'm that into it, I'm going to spend the five hours fixing this problem. But most gamers aren't right. uh, as hardcore. And I'm not even the most hardcore. I'm probably the least hardcore gamer at this table right now. And there are so many people who just go, ah, fuck it. I'm going to play Super Mario Brothers because when that breaks, I just hit reset right. <laughs> and I start from scratch. And there's so, something to be said for the fact that since it's an open world game and they make them very large, by virtue of them being very large, they're prone to be very buggy. So uh, so them making them want to be so big that you want to put something so much of yourself into it, it's also that much more vulnerable to breaking, right? And being so devastating when it does break. Absolutely. It's yeah. my low point. Okay. Especially uh, if you get into modding, adds in a whole other right. level where it's not it's broken for reasons that the developers aren't even responsible for. Right. And you have a sense of responsibility it, for breaking I your know, own I game. Know. <laughs> it's, it's all my fault. <laughs> Patrick, what is your low point? Uh, this might be controversial, but I'm going to say fast travel. Oh. oh. So Get out. <laughs> 
the thing the thing about a, a huge open world that's great is you get this sense of you know I, when I travel uh, you know Skyrim is this huge open continent that, or this this land that feels really detailed and rich and if I can just hit a button and move across the whole of it it loses that sense of of distance and uh, the meaning of the the interrelationship of the spaces. Uh, and I have a really hard time not using it if that mm. tool is there. Um, I did finally, I did do a Skyrim run that I I installed a mod so that there were extra carriages. So I allowed myself to use carriages from place to place. Uh, and I gave I had a special wizard spell so I could run faster. <laughs> but I didn't fast travel because, and I felt I felt connected to the landscape and to its obstacles and in a way that I hadn't in previous playthroughs. Um, it's it's a big trade off I think in open world games is because you're trying to cater economically and and practically to people with different amounts of time yes. and and sort of interest and um, that there's there's a dumbing down that that happens and there's systems that are in place that make it easier to manage but also undermine uh, some of the complexity that I think is the whole fun part mm-hmm. uh, you know what. Another example is the, I was talking about the Skyrim arrow, um, the objective arrow. Sometimes there is a mission that would be interesting to try and figure out how to do it, but you know that you just follow where it tells you to go. Uh, And that becomes a necessity to providing uh, players who might not want to spend a whole bunch of time trying to figure out where they're supposed to be, but it also robs you of the experience of getting to do that all yourself. Hmm. Uh, well spoken. Well, I don't have nearly uh, nearly as general and universal as a gripe as you do. Mine's very personal, um, but mine is the lack of Red Dead Redemption ported to the PC. <laughs> so, I you know, Rockstar's games almost always release on consoles first because they have exclusivity agreements. Um, and after some time, they're released on my platform of choice on the PC. In cases like GTA V, I waited like nearly two years to play a game that I think everyone was probably sick and tired of by the time it got to that point. It was a great game. It was a, and a very good port for a PC, which very rarely happens when it's a console that ports. So I, it was worth the wait. But it's like that kind of wait can be frustrating, kind of like when you in the 90s when you were a kid and you missed something in the theater and you had to do that like nine-month, 12-month stretch before it was on, you know, on VHS at the rental store. (laughs) Um, Those used to exist. (laughs) (laughs) However, my Xanadu, my Chasing Amy, my Jodorowsky's Dune will forever be Red Dead Redemption on the PC. Um, And apparently the development was fraught with like such turmoil. The code, apparently parts of it got lost or parts of it was so broken um, that this disaster combined with the publisher's uh, I you know Red Dead Redemption didn't do as well as Grand, the Grand Theft Auto ones did. It was not as popular. Their desire not to port the game because they wouldn't make their they didn't appeal they would make their money back on it made it makes this prospect less and less likely every passing year. And it's it's a sad reality that Rockstar and Take Two the publisher like just don't don't have the the like the interest to make it happen. Um, and of course, it's not like a strict requirement for me to on, for uh, it to be on PC for me to play it. Like I bought a 360 specifically to play just one game, and it was Red <laughs> Dead Redemption because it was mm-hmm. the game I couldn't play elsewhere. But consoles die, and uh, they don't make more of them. And I want to keep revisiting that sort of lonely, amazing world of Red Red Dead Redemption from time to time. Um, it's just a shame to me that PC plays second fiddle in these instances. Um, especially considering that the developers that make our games 
are, are almost all wholly PC gamers, and the innovations that you see in console games usually start on PC first. So for me, my low point is the Lost Horizon of Red Dead Redemption on PC. Oh, so good. I think I cried when uh, you go down in th- to Mexico for the first time and the song plays. It's oh, incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so incredible. <laughs> okay, let's drag ourselves out of the gutter. We're going to go for high point. Let's start with you, Patrick. What's your high point for open world games? Oh, so I think it's this, this idea of emergence where if you have enough systems of sufficient complexity that are interacting with each other, things can happen that nobody expected. And that's where you get these really interesting stories that aren't provided by the developer and nor they exist just with you as the player. It's uh, this really interesting interaction. Uh, One of my favorite stories of this is is going back to Skyrim again. Uh, I I was tired of starting over and playing through the intro quest. So I had a mod, so I just woke up naked in a forest. (laughs) (laughs) I had a mod before. (laughs) Real life mod. (laughs) So... um, here I am, I'm dying of exposure, and I need food, and I need a place to stay, and I have no money or resources. Um, and so I ran to the, the thief town in the, in the south. Uh, Riften. Riften. Riften, yes. So I woke up outside of Riften. I, I was like, what am I going to do? I don't have any, I can't kill any of the creatures around here. Uh, but I'd also installed a mod that gets rid of the load time when you enter a city. And because of that, the guards inside the city looked out and saw bandits outside the city. They recognized each other, and a battle emerged. <laughs> and I went up and looted the corpses of the fallen, <laughs> sold their swords at the shop, and had enough to get myself a bite to eat and a room for the night. And that was that was my story. It's different than anybody else who's played the game, and it makes it personal, and that's, to me, so much fun. And I, I'd like open-world developers to provide more spaces for unexpected things to take place that aren't mm. so tightly controlled. I have kind of a story like that for Grand Theft Auto 4. Uh, I was playing Nico Bellic and I start to cross the street and I get hit by a cab going really slow and I get knocked down and the guy in the cab swears at me and for some reason I'm like, you know, fuck you. And I get up and I punch his car and the guy gets out with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and in that moment, I could probably pull out a gun of my own because I have an arsenal. That's classic Liberty City, the mm-hmm. armed yeah. cabbie. Yes. Armed cabbie. I could bring up the wheel of weapons I have that has like a rocket launcher <laughs> on there. But for whatever reason, I decided to just run for it. And I start weaving through traffic to cross the street. And the guy's shooting at me. And he hits another car. And the guy gets out of that car with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and he opens fire. And I guess in the crossfire, another car gets. And there's like four or five guys all shooting at each other. And they've forgotten about me. And I just go around the corner and go into that, you know, cover mode. And I'm just watching this whole thing. And then the cops show up. And there's this block wide gun battle that's like four sides. And I've initiated it, and it has nothing to do with me. It's forgotten me, and it's going independently of any decisions I make. And I just decide to not get involved in it, and I don't even have a wanted rating. (laughs) It was great. And it's the sort of thing that happens when AIs bump into AIs. It was just such a wonderful, random experience. Hmm. And, Kinsey, do we need to re-articulate? Is it the com- completionism? Is that your... Uh... <laughs> it's de- it's definitely one of them. And I do 100% agree with the, like, immersion. Because, mm. I mean, we I, we might have touched on it earlier. Maybe it was off 
air, but whatever. Like even the reading every single like terminal mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Fallout. Oh yeah. It mm-hmm. may, or you know, other games do this too with hollow tapes or whatever. Sure. But it creates a whole new sense of immersion where I'm like, not mm-hmm. only am I playing my game, I'm hearing all these other people's stories, and I get super into it. Sure. And I want to find all those tapes, and I, you know, it's just something so small. But they had they had you know, they wrote all that in just to make this game so much better for me. Hmm. And it's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. Mike, what's your high point? I am going to go with uh, my high point being the colorful characters and the world-building minor personalities that dot the landscape of these games. Hmm. I'm talking about characters that don't move the plot along, who aren't part of the main storyline, but are there to just make the experience richer. And I've got... Four examples, three of which that are fun, and one that was actually pretty affecting on me. Hmm. Uh, first one, of course, is Parker Quinn from Fallout 4. Have mm-hmm. you guys encountered Parker Quinn? Mm-hmm. Parker Quinn is a ginger con man who hangs out in Southie, who <laughs> is on a street corner, and who's like, hey, hey. And he calls you over and wants to uh, scam you. Uh, he wants, he's like, hey, you know, what is the deal with this? Why are we using fucking bottle caps for currency? And he's gone around. He's like, don't worry. I've talked to everybody in the Commonwealth. And what, fucking bottle caps? What is this, 1832? <laughs> and he's, he said that he's talked to everybody and that he's going to stop using bottle caps. We're going to phase it out. And I've got the new latest thing, the charge card. <laughs> and he'll sell it to you for 110 caps. And the 10 caps, of course, is just a service fee. The rest, the 10 is on there. Every merchant in the Commonwealth will take this. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> uh, the beautiful thing about the charge card is that uh, it opens up a whole new dialogue window with every merchant in the game. Some of the merchants kind of politely go, uh, no. Like the hippie guy who sells drugs it, um at uh, what is the name Diamond City mm-hmm. just goes well you know money's kind of imaginary but that's way more imaginary <laughs> than I'm comfortable with <laughs> and some people get angry at you and throw you out some people get they laugh at you there's like one kid who sells purified water who goes ha Parker Quinn got another one <laughs> and, and you can go back and rob the guy and get your money back you can kill him you can get pickpocketed but it's like it has nothing to do with the plot mm-hmm. but it added an element another one of course is Herbert Moon oh my God, from yes. Red Dead Redemption, the yes. pompous, anti-Semitic, conspiracy-minded shopkeeper in the town of Armadillo, <laughs> who is proud to tell you while you're wandering around a store that there is no Jewish-made goods in my store. <laughs> and he just will say things like this. He's like, well, you know, the Jews killed Lincoln. That's why there's a triangle on the money. And he's just fucking bonkers. And they actually brought him back. I mean, he has nothing to do with the plot. You just buy shit from him, like ammo. And they brought him back into the plot of their zombie-themed DLC, where he actually has a big rant, where he... He just blames, of course, the zombie apocalypse on, quote, he says, this is a good country once. Now people are eating each other, and it's all for fault of the Jewish, British, Catholic, homosexual elite and their ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just fucking crazy. And also, he says his own name all the time. He's just like, I've been robbed! I'm Herbert Moon! <laughs> he's voting for Trump, right? He is so voting for Trump. Yeah. Or at least his great, 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 great grandchildren will be. Uh, the other one is fantastic in fallout new vegas Mm -hmm. fantastic is 
I guess he's the head scientist by occupation, but not by actual uh, participation in what he does. Um, there's a satellite array station that the New California Republic controls in the Mojave Wasteland. And they found this bullshitty dude bro guy who calls himself fantastic to be in charge of it. And when you actually ask him, how the fuck did you get this job? He's like, they asked me how I understood theoretical. Oh, well, I understood theoretical physics. I said, I have a theoretical degree in physics. They welcome me aboard. And every time you see this asshole, he is failing upwards and he has a better job than the one he had before. When you finally have to defend the, um, the Hoover Dam against attack, he's in charge of the, the stuff underneath it. And you can totally tell his long suffering assistant is really the person running it and lets you know that fantastic only knows how to work the intercom (laughs) (laughs) but the one that really stood up to me the one that really had an impact on me was the character of trash can carla in Mm. fallout 4 oh Mm -hmm. yeah uh, oh, God, I love Trash Can Carla. Trash Can Carla is this tough old lady who is constantly chain smoking and she just travels the wasteland as a traveling merchant. And as I started building up the Sanctuary Hills uh, settlement that I had, she was a regular there. She would pop in, she would sell me stuff. If, if there was ever a time I needed to buy ammo, for the longest time I was buying it from Carla. If I needed supplies for my settlement, I'm buying it from Carla. When I find a bunch of trash I don't need, I'm selling it to Carla. And she always has this sort of attitude if she's not taking shit. She's got a very sarcastic sense of humor. She, she reminds me of a lot of people I've known in my life who mm-hmm. have that kind of like, I've seen some shit, but you, you can throw anything at me, I can take it. Mm-hmm. Also, when your settlement is attacked and she's here, she'll just go, not my fight. <laughs> She'll just kind of move to the side. Um, And as I'm going through the game, you get into this question of of factions. And um, for myself, I'm like I said, I like to play the white hat. So I side with the uh, Commonwealth Minutemen who go out to sort of save people, the ultimate good guy group. And the other one, I side with the railroad. Mm -hmm. And the railroad, they are essentially... um, an anti-slavery escape group for escaped androids because the Institute, which is an organization that is working within the uh, Commonwealth to recreate technology to make the world better than it was before the bombs fell, who are trying to fix everything, who make everything clean and safe again. They're bringing back technology. Um, They're doing it on the backs of android slavery, that they are building creations who are undoubtedly people who have fear, who have uh, basically all the emotions and feelings and problems that every normal person would have, except they have one job and it's to push a broom or to go out and kill somebody. They, the Institute frequently goes out and kidnaps and replaces people with Android duplicates so they can spy on people and do all this stuff. So the, the Institute is essentially the boogeyman of this game. I later get into the Institute and I find a series of terminals that in their headquarters that the Institute actually has a series of informants throughout the game. They have people that are paying, they pay for information, who spy on people, who give them leads on escaped androids, who sell them information, who probably spy for them and give them a little cash on the side. And looking through that, I see a list of a bunch of different people I recognize, minor characters throughout the game. People who are acting as informants to them. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's in Diamond City. He's doing this. Oh, I know who that is. There's that. And on the list, I see Trash Can Carla. Hmm. 
and the bottom of my fucking stomach fell out. <laughs> For the first time in a ever in my entire life, a video game hurt my fucking feelings. <laughs> I I felt betrayed. I felt hurt by this character in a video game because despite the fact she's not a part of the plot, she was always there. She always had a funny thing to say. I liked Carla. Mm. And it was that moment, that emergent moment where this person, I mean, I'm saying that word person, this character, this series of sprites and algorithms in a video game became a person I felt betrayed mm-hmm. by Trash Can Carla. This person that I liked, I'm doing missions and going out and rescuing escaped androids and doing all this stuff and trying to be a good person. And this person is someone I let into my settlement on a regular basis who I chat with and all this stuff. And she was a fucking turncoat. Jesus fucking Christ, I felt something in a game that I'd never felt before. Mm. So, God damn it, Trash Can Carla, you broke my heart. <laughs> and that's my low point. That's nice. my high point. Uh, yes, that's that's my, see, that's, that's again, I'm going to get mixed up. <laughs> it's my high point because it's a low yes, point. Yes. It's the fact that I felt hurt. I, I've, the, a video game made me feel something, mm. and that's fucking incredible. That is incredible. That's my high point. Nicely done, Mike. Uh, well, mine will be a little bit more pedestrian, uh, but that was great, Mike. That was fantastic. Um, mine is Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. I know that there are p- plenty of, of things that were more technically more interesting. I did I did remember that actually San Andreas was the last video game that I rented from Blockbuster Video. <laughs> <laughs> shortly after they stopped existing. Um, for me, it's the zenith of the GTA franchise. I think it was the first successful attempt in a video game to make a period piece based on my childhood, which is <laughs> in an era of my childhood, which is strange. The cars, the radio stations, the tongue firmly in cheek advertisements that surround the world, um, and this highly satirized, like like parallel nineteen uh, nineties Los Angeles. Um, Rockstar allowed those all of us suburb those suburb raised MTV fed Generation Xers to play out this fantasy of living a character straight out of like the gangster rap albums. Um, but not only was it like a satisfying setting, but it was like a huge, huge improvement on the gameplay mechanics and the setting of GTA three, um, with an attempt to make the experience truly without the boundaries that you would have seen before loading screens or just a, a city with water that you can't fall into. The world was enormous. It was a recreation of both Los Angeles, San Francisco and Las Vegas or their, you know, their doppelgangers with all the intervening wilderness in between those things. All of it for you to explore if you wanted to. By BMX bike, by SUV, by helicopter, underwater. You could go underwater in this. You could swim. Um, And there were a lot of firsts. And I think personally, I think this is the one that tickles me the most is it was the first game to start a controversy about a simulation of sexual intercourse in a video game with the hot coffee mod. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know. But the interesting, this this was unused assets, right? You could not get this in the vanilla game. It was not possible to do it without hacking. Um, but it was a an intercourse mini game. <laughs> Let me say that again. Let me say that again. It was a mini game, basically a rhythm game where you had sex with your date, essentially, right? Fully clothed with the with the with your date in inside a dating sim. And when it broke public, it was a shitstorm. The Federal Trade Commission. Um, uh, investigated Rockstar and Take Two, uh, lawsuits and protests were launched, and a little-known politician from New York tried and failed to write new legislation to regulate video games on on the uh, on the occurrence of a par- portion of an unused game that some people thought was offensive. It was GTA 
San Andreas launched a full-on moral panic in America in the 90s. Um, and how many other games have done that aside from Mortal Kombat, I ask you? Um, and unless my brain fails me, it was the first time that I was ever aware of playing a game that had an African-American protagonist. Albeit a protagonist that had a lifestyle that I think people might have find stereotypical, I think. Um, but for me, it meets that standard of a superlative game that replaying it even a decade later, it doesn't feel anachronistic or primitive or stale. Um, it just, it's fun. And Rockstar created this self-contained, consistent world wherein you're you're just simply unleashed to do what you wanted to do. Um, it was that time that I first found the promise of the open world game to be fulfilled. And all you had to do was follow the damn train, CJ. That's it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Uh, Patrick Johnson, thanks for returning. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Uh, Kinsey Burke, thank you for joining us. I hope you'll come back soon. Of course, yeah. And Mike Gillis. Hey, good to be here. Thank you, Casey. Let's do it again. All right. Good night. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Now, as you can see from the posters that we have displayed here, Many games contain content that is deeply disturbing. It's almost routine in popular games for players to spray other people with Uzis, to drive over pedestrians, to kill police officers, to attack women, and in some cases, even to engage in cannibalism. <laughs>